a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Hey team, welcome along to a special Olympic drop of the Howie Games, episode 132, part A, how to become one of the fastest men on the planet, featuring one of the most consistently quick sprinters of all time, Atto Bolden. Look at Bolden. Bolden is going clear of the field. Bolden is going to win by a big margin. Superb performance from the little man. It's taken a long, long time to win this gold medal, but Atto Bolden has come good when it mattered. Atto has a truly phenomenal record across the sprints, the 100 and 200. Four Olympic medals, a silver and three bronze, a World Championship gold in the 200, a Commonwealth Games gold in the 100. Atto ran fast, often. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by This episode, as well as telling Addo's story, aims to run you through in detail just what is required to be one of the fastest men on the planet, how they train, what they eat, the physical and mental preparation required, dealing with pressure, and technically, in detail, how to run 100 metres in less than 10 seconds, something Addo did 28 times. So many lost and left behind, and no one seemed to care. Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Now just before we roll, we now have our own YouTube channel We are tubers, yeah, like all the cool kids YouTube.com forward slash Howie Games That's YouTube.com forward slash Howie Games Or just search for it It will be updated every Thursday by MJ with video content from all of our episodes, including the back catalogue. So you can now watch as well as listen to the podcast. If you could subscribe to help grow it, that would be fantastic. Okay, enjoy life in the very fast lane with Atto Jabari Bolden. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I. Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games. I'm that pumped to have this man on, one of the fastest men on the planet. He's getting set for the Olympics as well. He still looks a million bucks to over there in uh, Tokyo. Addo Bolden, I presume you're in quarantine, great man. Uh, it's great to see you and meet you through a, a mutual friend of ours, the great Lee Diffie. Yes, great to meet you too, Howie. Um, yeah, Lee and I have been working together for some time and it's it's a pleasure and uh, we joke all the time about our Commonwealth-themed booth. <laughs> That's right. That That's exactly right. By the time this comes out, you, you'll be out of quarantine, but you, you're in quarantine. You've come from America to Tokyo, have you? Is that is that where you are at the moment? Yeah, I am at the hotel um, that we will be uh, all staying at, uh, all the NBC crew, and I can see the National Stadium, and we, more importantly, we can walk to the National Stadium. It's about three minutes walk, so um, we're very grateful for that. How are you dealing? How long are you in quarantine in the hotel for? 
Well, we have about five days of, you know, quote unquote, hard quarantine. And then we have 14 days of soft quarantine after that. So I'm only here for 21 days. So most of my trip is going to be spent under quarantine. We can't go out and sightsee. We can't go shopping. We can't really go on public transportation mixed with the Japanese public. We kind of have to stay in our bubble, the NBC hotel over to the venue and then back. So are you still able to work out? Because looking at the size of that chest of you, man, on the other side of the world, you, you need to keep working to keep the chest like that. I um I, I am still in the in the gym occasionally. I, well, let me confess. I, you know, I coach one of the, the planet's fastest teenagers. So um, it gets competitive every now and then. And that's why uh, I am still in, in reasonable shape. As you mentioned, you're from Trinidad and I want to explore your journey with you, but obviously part of the West Indies, for people that haven't had the pleasure of going there, a group of separate countries that come together basically only to play cricket together, let's be honest. You, you compete a separate country at the Olympics. For a man that spent so much time in the space of running fast from the Caribbean, why are the Jamaicans so fast? Can you answer that question? Um, I think anybody that goes to the Jamaican high school championships every March um, that that question sort of answers itself. It's it's like asking why is a Mercedes a high quality car? Well, when you know the factory that it comes from, if I tell oh. you I have a Mercedes parked outside for you, you go, <laughs> oh good. You don't, you don't ask what model. You just go, oh my gosh, you bought me a Mercedes. In Jamaica, they have a Mercedes factory, and right. every year they pump out of their high school system more Mercedes, and 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 a lot of them go on to uh, to do great things. That's that's the system that gave you Usain Bolt and Asafa Powell and Johan Blake and Shelly Ann Fraser Price and Elaine Thompson Hurrah. Um, so they have they they have such a, a a reverence first of all for athletics. That's the first thing. It starts there. That culture. They understand the sport. They demand the best of their athletes. And then you have that high school system that is of such a high quality that when you have talent going into that system, they have a steady output. Now, having said that, they are lamenting the fact that they do not look like they're leaving uh, Tokyo with any male sprint medals. No. Um, and 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 that's a source of great concern and consternation back home. But um, no, the Jamaicans they have a reverence for uh, for track and field that has to be seen to be believed, and as a result, their the culture of that country is, you know, are you getting faster? And I, I really want to. I'll drive you crazy with my questions about the 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 sprinting caper, and I really want to del- delve into it and ask you about specific parts of the race and what's required. But before, just a broad question to start, when you're running the 100 or the 200 against the fastest guys on the planet, how much is physical and how much is mental when you get to the start line? Um, I think it's probably about 60-40 with, with physical over mental because, I mean, let's face it, you're not going to have, you know, you're not going to have any any donkeys running a race with thoroughbreds. <laughs> to get in to get into that race to get into the final 8 to get into the final 8 to get into the podium you have to be an exceptional athlete so that's the first thing but then once you are there you know no matter who you are you have you have the doubts you have the the things that maybe have not gone perfectly that year can you shut that out and get the performance from yourself so yeah it's it it's certainly a very elite club of it's it's like looking at the nba and going oh yeah i'd like to you know i i, I use this example with my with my athletes all the time i I'd, I'd love to play center for the los angeles lakers 
but I'm only 5'9", and chances are you're going to have to be, you know, 6'11", 7 feet to get up there. It's kind of like that for the for the 100 and the 200, right? You can have a kid and he goes, oh, mom, I want to be in the Olympics one day. It's like, okay, son, that's that's a great aspiration to have. But do you have the physical gifts to get there is a, is a big part of the equation. Once you get there, though, your, your mind can, can work wonders, obviously. I love your analogy of there's no donkeys in the top eight. There are only thoroughbreds. So, mate, tell, tell me, I've had the great pleasure of covering three or four Caribbean Premier Leagues in the Caribbean and I've, uh, I've been blessed to see a lot of the different parts of the West Indies. Tell me about your upbringing, born in Trinidad. Tell me about your parents and a little bit of your family history. I'm fascinated, mate. I grew up very middle class, um, grew up in a house where, you know, I probably had a computer when I was eight or nine. Um, both parents had, had had gone to university and demanded, you know, really demanded excellence from their kids. So my parents met in Montreal at university and then moved back home to uh-huh. kind of settle down. Um, I was born in 73. So by the time I sort of come of age, Trinidad is a is is the most amazing place to live because you have a very start uh, very high standard of living. You know, lots of oil money coming in. So to me, I grew up in Utopia. You know, going to going to to the states to spend summers with my uh, with my family in California every um, every summer. But again, with very demanding parents who um, kind of said, "Yeah, we didn't come this far for our." you know, for our offspring to just, you know, be whatever. So both my brother and I were um, were very much, uh, you know, was demanded of us that we were going to make our mark on the world. So, um, yeah, from a very young age, I think sports necessarily wasn't a big part of my life. My athletic gifts came late. But from a very young age, um, it was instilled in us that we were going to be excellent. Cliched question, asking a man from Trinidad whether he played cricket, but did you like, – we, we were blessed to have Brian Lara on this show and he, he ran through his cricket upbringing. Did you play cricket? Because as you said, your athletic gifts took a while to develop, but surely you had some pace behind you. <laughs> um, cricket was never my number one sport. I was more of a football guy. Okay. Um, but I think when you are from the same village, which I am, Santa Cruz, and when you go to the same high school, which I did, uh, Fatima College, as Brian Lara, that can actually be a disincentive because when you see that <laughs> left-handed guy... No, it, I'm, I'm dead serious. My early memories are of watching Brian practice in the nets, right? And of course, he's a lefty and he had such a sweet stroke and he was so good at it that I almost looked at it and went... Well, I'll never be that good. So what 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 sense does it make? So I, people go, oh, you know, you, you went to school with Brian Lara. Wasn't that incentive? No, it was the exact opposite because you watch him, you go, I'll never be that good. So you're a bit stiff when possibly one of the greatest of all time. You could have been the third best batsman the world's ever seen, but you've got the second there. It's, it's pretty hard to compete with, isn't it? That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. You look up and you go, well, I'm clearly not fit, fit enough for this sport. <laughs> so how did you get into the the sport of athletics? I know you're you're a very uh, very good footballer. Was it speed identified when you were playing football? When we talk about football, we mean soccer in this part of the world. Yeah, I was okay. Um, like I said, my athletic gifts came late, so I left Trinidad at fourteen, and I don't think anybody in my high school would have said, "Oh yeah, the next time he comes back, you know, he'll be a couple of years from being our first world champion in athletics." So I left and was playing soccer in uh, in New York. That's where I got discovered. And uh, the track coach there saw me going down the right wing and went and said, come over here. 
um, how would how would you like to be how would you like to be involved in track and field? And I'm like, did you not see me score three goals? And he's like, yeah, but I saw the goal. I saw the goalie let in four. How'd you like to be in a sport where you control everything? And that was literally it for me. I was like, ooh, so I control everything, and that was it. That was that was I would I would only play I would only play soccer one more year, and uh, after that it was it was all about track and field. But yeah, when I get discovered. I know that things have changed because between 14 and let's say 16, my speed really comes on. I'm just running rings around people on the soccer. I'm causing real problems for people on the soccer field. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, at, at that point, I knew that my my calling was probably in the other direction because I was I was OK. I was OK as a footballer, but you could see world class speed coming in. How's a man from Trini first cope with his first New York winter? It was not fun. The winter of 1988. You can you can go and Google how rough that that winter was. And not only was it was it my first winter, but I had kind of been conned into thinking that the United States did not get as cold as I thought it did because I only went to California in the summers. I only knew the United States in the summer. And I remember my father my father kept telling me, "Oh, you go to New York for the winter? Watch, you'll see." And I was like, "Oh, come on, Dad. How bad can it be?" And I like stick my hand in the in the freezer. He's like, mm, "Colder than that." So, yeah, it was it was a rough it was a rough uh winter of 1988. Um I believe I got pneumonia. It was bad. I I, like, I did not cope well. But I always say New York made me tough. And I had this very, as I said, middle class, you know, Caribbean kid uh, upbringing. And I think New York and kind of having to take a step back and deal with life there, it made me very tough. You talk about physically developing between 14 and 16. Before training and before you start lifting and running, give me an idea of the physical gifts required to be an elite sprinter on the world stage. Physically, what are the raw materials you need? You have to have lots of fast twitch muscle. And that's the part that some people don't want to hear because it means, oh, wait, so you mean if I didn't sort of win this genetic lotto, I never have a chance? And it's like, that's exactly what it means. Like when okay. I, when I do these, yeah, when I do these DNA tests and so on, the first thing the DNA test tells me, just from me having only given them my saliva, is, oh, we see the presence of whatever this, this protein and this enzyme is here. And it means that you probably do a sprint or a power event. And it's like, wow, well, there it is in the science. So that's, that's the first thing. But to be honest, I see a lot of really gifted kids who have all the enzymes and proteins, but don't have the this, yeah. and they'll never make it as a as a as a pro anything because they just don't have the uh, the discipline. I think my combination of ability and really always having good life discipline and, and and not being a lazy kid, I think was was half the battle for me. We'll skip ahead a bit. I sort of want to frame this discussion around certain races and and major events. Your first Olympics, Barcelona at age. 18. So, so you're laughing about that. I presume you still had a lot of development to go, but for the first time when you're told you're going to represent Trinidad at the Olympics, what's the feeling like and what was the Barcelona experience like for a kid a kid of 18, Atto? Um, I could not have been more excited. I think I shaved Barcelona, the Barcelona logo with the rings into the back of my head, including the colors. Like I was, I was, I was all in. I have pictures of that somewhere. I'm going to post them at some point. Please do. Um, But the truth is I came to Barcelona having run fast enough to make the semifinals. I'd run 10.22 that year. 
Um, the winning time in the final was like 9.96. I think 10.0 got you a medal. I think Frankie Frederick ran 10.02 for second. So I could have made the semifinal if I'd gone to Barcelona and actually uh, produced. But this was kind of a trend for me at that time in my life. I was more about the talking about it and the celebrity of going than I was the actual running. So I was not training the way I should have. And I went to Barcelona and I was out in the first round in both of my events because I just I wasn't I wasn't in the kind of shape I should have been in this. It was almost like the accomplishment itself was making the Olympic team as opposed to no, you have now qualified to go and race against the world's fastest. It was a great lesson to learn at 18 because when I came back, I got two medals and then I went back four years later, I got two medals. But that first year, I saw all the sights and sounds of Barcelona because I was out very, very early. Right. So when you talk about the the, the strutting round stuff, I was fortunate enough uh, to see the men's 100-meter final in the 2004 games in Athens. Mm -hmm. And there was a delay (laughs) at home. For whatever reason, it was like a 40-minute delay and the guys were out on track for 40 minutes and they were playing Zorba the Greek. I've never seen a bloke, a group of blokes strut around for 40 minutes <laughs> as these guys did. I loved it because I love showtime and I love entertainment. How much of that is required to, to pump yourself up and look the other competitors in the eye in an event, especially the, the 100 metres? I think it's. I think it can be uh, a big part of the mental game, but I think it's evolved. I don't think that today's sprinters... Um, have that attitude, at least openly, towards each other. Um, when it was my era of Maurice Green and Donovan Bailey and some of those guys, Dennis Mitchell, Linford Christie, that was a big thing, right? Like, not, not I don't even want to say a stare down, but it was a nobody could give an inch and nobody could look in anybody else's direction and nobody had any kind of interaction. That's not the way it was with like Usain Bolt and company. And I used to kind of laugh at it because I used to look at at them and say, well, you guys don't really like each other, but it's a different kind of sporting world now where you can't, you know, openly hate your competitors. Um, That I remember those 2004 Olympic games in that final because I was out in the first round in 2004 as well. That was the end yep. of my career. And in just a few moments, the big question will be answered. Which one of these eight sprinters is about to achieve immortality at 43 kilometers per hour? And I remember looking out there and it was Sean Crawford and Justin Gatlin who were training partners and they were getting the best of, I, I still don't know why they brought them out that early, but I remember thinking, oh, there goes my pick because Asafa Powell laid down on the ground. You remember that? He yeah, sat, I do. And he like, he, I he do. and I went, oh God, what are you doing? Because that was my pick to win. And I saw him lay down on the ground. And I went, well, there goes my pick. And of course, uh, Gatlin won and so on. Gatlin is also coming on. Open Quello in the middle of the track, but it's Gatlin appearing to get there. Yeah, I remember how early they brought them out. And uh, back then, that was a big thing because you could see Asafa kind of retreat into his shell. Gatlin and Sean Crawford were just out there dominating the energy. And it's not, it's probably not an accident that, that Gatlin ended up winning. Back to Addo in a moment. The back catalogue is now bursting with episodes, so please go back and check out some you may have missed. Episode 25 of the show features an athlete who stopped the nation at the Sydney Games in 2000, Catherine Freeman. I've never really described these moments in the way I am now. So 
Yeah. Um, but I remember there was my masseuse, my training partner, and my coach, and quite hush sort of feeling. And and it's in that moment where you feel like you're a lamb going off to slaughter. And I mean that <laughs> wholeheartedly. Wow. Like you, you're so vulnerable and it's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't say that out loud or you don't think it. You just body knows it. That's Kathy Freeman on episode 25. Back to Addo. So training-wise, take me through... The training required, now you're grinning because I don't know if it's painful memories or joyous memories. <laughs> Take me into the weight room and onto the track. Let's let's have an in-depth discussion about what type of training is required to be the top fastest eight blokes on the planet. When you're in, so you're not in competition mode, you're, you're, you're physically developed now, you're looking to go to your, possibly your second Olympics. When you're in full work mode, what are you doing, Addo? I'm fascinated by this stuff, mate. I'm going to bore you to tears with my questions here. No, not at all. Not at all because it it, it amuses me to kind of – that's why I'm grinning because it amuses me to think back, uh, you know, to how much work it took, um, how much you had to be on your game, especially in my group because I was in a group – remember, my group was also John Drummond and, I mean – my group took three of the three places at the 2000 Olympic Games for Team USA. It was a yeah. very competitive group. If you were the best in my group, you were the best in the world. Okay. Um, so these are the guys you're training with. These are the guys you're training yes. with day in, day out. Right. Yes. So what it means is that if you have a bad start on one, if you're doing 20 starts and you have one, you have a bad reaction to the gun, you're in fourth. <laughs> if you don't feel if you don't feel well on a particular day, you're in the back. It was so competitive, but I love that about it because it was it was almost a sense of comfort of if I can dominate this group, there is nothing out there that that I should be afraid of because these are the best in the world. In terms of the weight room, though, so I remember my mother coming to watch me lift one day, and she was almost in tears because she was looking at him like, "Why are you doing this to my child? Like, <laughs> you're putting, you know, you're putting four hundred pounds on the bar." And he's, and I'm, I remember thinking, "Mom, if you don't want to see how the sausage is made, then you can't be at the <laughs> sausage factory. This, this is what it takes. I have to lift this many weights and put myself through this much." to be able to run on, on the track in the way that you see and to have it be that easy and be able to duplicate it and replicate it. So, so give me some numbers. Give, give me some numbers of like, like so what, what are you doing? You're doing uh, squats? Like what, what are you doing? Yeah, a lot of Olympic lifts too, though. We, we had okay. a, lot of, a lot of power cleans and so on. Um, my, my best squat was up near 500 pounds. My best bench was about three, maybe about 340, 350. Which is funny because I could almost lift that now. I know we know so much more about lifting yep. that in my old age, in my forties, I've gotten up to like three twenty five, three thirty, and I go, "Wow, this is that close!" But I know so much more about lifting now than I did back then as well. And are they power reps? You're doing short reps with as much weight as possible. What are you doing? It would depend on the time of the year. We would start with, I mean, like when we started in the preseason off season we'd be doing eight reps but by the time it came down to like oh we're getting on the plane to sydney um yeah we we might be only doing two to three reps and is it is it equally spread that you're trying to build your legs as well as your arms like 
It's it's an impressive sideshow. We, I've seen you running, and the guns are poking out. Is it arm? Is it arm? Like it is. I think that's why everyone watches it, Addo, because it is the perfect physical specimen. Whether it's the men's or the women's hundred on the track, that's we all look at that rig and think, "Wow, that, that will be handy to roll down the beach on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon." <laughs> um, I, I think you work on your weaknesses. Um, for me. My weakness was probably going to be more upper body. So I spent a lot of time working on that. People, people, you know, you've, you've remarked about my, my shoulders. That's not from the weight room. That's from my father. Okay. <laughs> I have always been broad chested. All the men in my family are broad chested. But yes, at, at the peak of my powers, um, I do look back at some of those pictures and go, Oh, wow, that guy was proper fit. And then on the track, so training sessions on the track, take me through a a sprint training session. Like what's the longest distance you run? Are you just running hundreds? Like what type of repeats are you doing? No. I I, I told you, mate, I got got so many questions for you. No, we we never did anything past maybe four or 500 because my coach always believed that doing anything longer than that, um, sprinters are gonna they're gonna just dog it anywhere and they're not gonna they're not gonna really give a full effort for anything more than than four or five hundred meters so no we weren't we weren't doing you know repeat miles or half miles or six hundreds um but it was so it was so competitive imagine I don't know if you have brothers or if you have siblings that you're competitive yep. with it was so competitive within the group that you didn't want to have a bad day or a bad rep or or anything because you would be, you know, you'd get talked about that day like, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's why you, you can keep up with us on the first one. So it was so competitive that you wanted to kill yourself on every rep to win or at least be in the in the in the in the lead pack, because otherwise you're going to hear about it for the whole day and, and probably for the whole week. So with with the reps, you know, you say if you drop one rep, are you doing a certain amount of hundreds or one fifties in a session? And like, what's your rest and recovery time? Like, what are you busting out? Yeah, like I remember uh, a workout which I never had an issue with, but Maurice would would throw up every week. Uh, we do five times one fifty, and this is where I think my soccer background helped me because I was the one person that could go and go and go and go and not get sick, and. Maurice, who, you know, at the time had a better 100 meter personal best, he would do, we'd be doing five times 150. So you do your 150 and then your recovery would be your walk back to the start of the 150. Yep. Invariably, every week he'd, he'd be sick and I'd be like, huh, it's interesting how, you know, I mean, I, I was also better at 200, but it's interesting how a workout like this floors him, but it barely phases me. You're talking about Maurice, Maurice Green, who I used to love watching run. So, mate, take me to Atlanta. I don't want to go on a full depth here, but the 100 uh, bronze medal in the 100 and the 200, but both times she's world record jobs. Donovan Bailey breaks the record in the 100 and then actually the 100. Take me to the 100 in Atlanta (laughs) because is that where uh, Linford Christie... Yes, it is. ...was disqualified a couple of times. The lineup for the final was formidable. Alongside Bailey, there was world number one Frankie Fredericks, who had finished behind Christie in 1992 to claim the silver. The USA's Dennis Mitchell, who earned bronze in the same race. Atto Bolden, the superstar in waiting, who'd become the youngest 100-metre medalist in world championship history the previous year. I think you false started as well. So take me back to that and the mental preparation required when this false starts happening. Um, I didn't have any mental preparation. That's why I have bronze. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I if I had if I had uh, proper right. mental preparation, maybe I'd have the gold. Okay. Um, 
You couldn't tell me that I'm not going to win because my first round, I breezed through. The second round was a walk. The semifinal, nobody was close. And I'm like, yeah, I know Donovan and and Frankie are going to be on the podium with me, but I'll be fine. The gun goes off and Linford Falls starts. And I'm like, okay, so Linford, he's, you know, I didn't think Linford was beating the three of us. So I thought Linford's trying to get up and he's trying to get a good start. Christy knew he'd need to run the perfect race to retain his title. A rare false start from Christie. Famously an excellent starter, he knew he'd have to be flawless today. He pushed his luck. One more of those and his Olympic Games career would be over. The second one is um, is on me. And if you look at that, if you look at the gun, you go, oh, eh, that was close. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, all right, fine, whatever. Another false start. This time, young Bolden was at fault. Tension was building. And then Linford Falls starts again. So now he's out, but he won't leave. No. Third time lucky? Christie looked bemused, but replays seemed to confirm that he was at fault. His title defense was over in heartbreaking circumstances. And... Yeah, so I'm the youngest in the group. Instead of me just, I don't know, minding my own business and looking straight ahead and keeping my composure, somehow it becomes almost uh, offensive to me that Linford won't leave. Well, it's just like three or four minutes. He's out on track disputing oh, the it's officials. A, it's longer than that. Okay. He's like, I'm not leaving. Don't touch me. I'm not, you know, and I'm like, come on, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in a hurry to go, go get my gold medal. Christie removed the second flag from his blocks. He was refusing to accept the verdict. It was remarkable behavior from the elder statesman of sprinting. He was asked to leave the arena and after holding up the race for nearly three minutes, he reluctantly stepped away from the track. Um, Eventually he leaves and the race goes off. And I am so flustered now and I have lost so much of my composure that the gun goes off and I sort of throw my game plan out. And Dennis Mitchell gets the best start. I go get Dennis. So I lead to about 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. This time they do get away. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on a surge. Adam Bolden in the lead. But because I have thrown away my race plan and hit the NOS way too early, now here comes Donovan. Donovan catches me at about 75, 80, and he would go on to win. I then commit another sin, which I know better, which is I turn to look at the line and Frankie outleans me for the silver. So it's like if, if there was something that I could have done wrong in that race, I did it. Um, and as a result, it's, it's, a, it's a race that is, I wouldn't say it's painful for me to watch, but I go back and I look at that race and I just go, you could have done so much better. Okay. <laughs> When you have put in everything right and you've been in the gym and you've been doing those squats and you've been running on track and you, you've been doing everything you can and you're going confident that you are going to be the fastest man on the planet. Mm-hmm. Now, I look at it and I've had this discussion with Olympians time and time again, whether it's Grant Hackett, one of our famous swimmers, or, or Ian Thorpe. Grant described his view of a silver medal as disgusting. That's the way he views it. Exactly, but that's the way he views it. So when you go into a race like 96 in Atlanta and you cross the line when you think you're going to get gold and you get bronze, you're the third fastest man in the world. It's an incredible achievement. 
How is it for you when you cross the line at that stage? I cried like a baby. Did you? I didn't cry because of the bronze. I cried because you don't get chances like that every day. And I know I knew very well that I had, I prided myself on being disciplined and my discipline had gotten away from me. The moment had overcome my discipline. And because I didn't stay in the moment and stay focused and I got caught up in stuff I couldn't control, that's the reason why I was holding that medal. And that's what happens to everybody who comes to the Olympics and something goes wrong. That's that's why we bring all those cameras here. Because for somebody, they're going to have the best night or the best day of their life, and they're going to leave with the gold. And for everybody else, they're like me. They have the story to tell for the rest of their lives. Well, I, did, I didn't do this. So I could have done this. So that's, that's what makes the Olympics compelling, because everybody has a story, winner and loser. So that's when things go wrong. I really want to talk to you like when you become world champion and things go right. I'll get to that in a minute. But the second major event for you is the 200 at Atlanta. Bolden, the uh, champ from Trinidad who was third. And again, it's a world record from Michael Johnson. What made Michael Johnson Michael Johnson? He had 400 metres strength with the ability to to sprint with with the guys who, you know, who ran the 100 and the 200. Almost into the set position. Away, Johnson got a great start. Already up on Garcia, Fredericks and Bolden out hard. Johnson running a brilliant bend, so it's Fredericks. Bolden third into the straight. Um, as much as I'm telling you that the 100 is is difficult for me to watch and it, you know, I did so much wrong, the 200 is the exact opposite. There's nothing I could have done that night to have improved my position. I never ran 1968, and I sure as heck never ran 1932. Those two guys, I was not the youngest in the field. I think I was the second youngest in the field. Those two guys, I had watched Michael Johnson and Frankie Fredericks. I had watched them growing up. Those were my idols. They were way more experienced. They were way better at 200. I knew that if I ran well, I could get a medal. But that race I can watch all day because I look at that race and I go, oh, look, you have a front row seat to 1932. Fredericks and Johnson, Johnson clearly I cannot believe he beat Frankie Fredericks by that far. 19.32, he's broken the world record by 0.34 of a second. You've never seen anything better than that. Um, But at the same time, I I have no... I have no regrets about that race. That's the best I was going to run that night. It was a national record, a Caribbean record, and I only ran once faster than I did that night in my entire career. So that was actually one of my better races, even though it came so early in my career. I watched the 96 Olympics of all places in a place called Windhoek, which is the capital of Namibia. Namibia, that's right. I was backpacking. Yes, that's where Frankie's from. They were going off their chops for Frankie Fredericks. Or you could see water wars like Frankie was the only bloke in the whole Olympics. As well they should. It was outstanding. As well they should, yeah. That is the end of Atto Bolden, Part A, our Olympic special. See you at the starting blocks for Part B. Listener.